0: Some times I wonder why
1: I spit the lonely night dreaming of a storm the male- Welcome to subtle beast, everybody. I am your host Foltz, with me as always, my main man, my co-host, my brother. Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, bro? Oh, I'm doing good, folks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm doing a lot better than the individuals that we're going to be discussing in today's podcast <laughs> Um Today, obviously, you can tell by the title, we're going to be talking about uh, mass hysteria and uh, what goes along with that and how it affects people and all the different situations that arise from mass hysteria. Now, Steve, can you say that you've ever experienced any type of mass hysteria, like, on any level?
0: You know, I was thinking back through my mind, and I I don't think I've ever really witnessed it, man.
1: Yeah, I don't think so either. And I just recently, within the last few minutes here in pre-show, mentioned to Steve, the best I can come up with is, like, when we go to a concert. You know, me and Steve like to frequent concerts when we can. And everybody in the concert seems to be, like, You know, feeling good, feeling great. And if you're not kind of going into the show, that rubs off on you. The energy transfers. And, you know, even the band can experience from time to time. And uh, so that would be, like, positive mass hysteria. It would be, like,
0: shared energy.
1: Yeah. But, um, yeah, what we're going to get into here uh, in the next minute or so is we compiled a list of, um, you know, mass hysteria outbreaks through – you know, throughout the ages and they're crazy they and, are wild and uh we hope that you enjoy them uh as much as we did they, some of them can be kind of dark and kind of scary but you know it's better to know and then because i mean if you know what to look for after this if you start seeing people acting a fool around you and other people are joining in just get out of there so, uh, all right, I'm going to kick it off here. Now, first and foremost, mass hysteria is a collective of delusion outbreaks. And they're more common than people realize. Most are familiar with some of history's most dramatic mass areas, such as the one surrounding the Salem witch trials. But other outbreaks have come and gone, without garnering as much attention or causing as much harm as that of the Salem. An example of more prosaic mass hysteria incidents occurred in 2012 when a student in Leroy High School in upstate New York began twitching and convulsing. And within a short while, dozens of other students started twitching and convulsing as well. There were no physical causes. It was all in the kid's head. Mass hysteria Mass hysteria are sociogenic, mental illnesses that propagate and spread rapidly within a community, with psychological symptoms sometimes coming out and manifesting themselves as physical conditions. They often are caused by long standing stresses and fears within a community, with symptoms slowly building up and emerging over a prolonged period of time, ranging from weeks to months. They usually explode in a rapidly contagious outbreak that engulfs the community, or large portion thereof Before subsiding over a period of weeks or months. Now, while most outbreaks of mass hysteria are more or less harmless, there have been quite a few throughout history that was far more bizarre. Indeed, many outbreaks proved just as dramatic or deadly as the one presaging the Salem witch trials, or even so, in, or even more so in their impact. Following are twelve histories. What we're going to, we had originally come up with 12. We're going to, we're doing, uh, we're going to probably share about maybe 10 or 11 with him today, uh, just because we took a couple out, just for uh, length of show. But uh, we're going to go over some of these uh, remarkable outbreaks of mass hysteria. Now, the first one we have for you, it's called, we're entitled The Cat Nuns of France. Now, before the modern era, many outbreaks of mass hysteria occurred within religious institutions. Convents were particularly prime grounds, ripe for eruptions of contagious mass delusion. That was because convents, especially in medieval days, contained large numbers of nuns who had been forced into them by their families. Once in, they were compelled to lead lives that many found disagreeable. Inside the convents, many of the unfortunate girls, or women, were forced into becoming nuns, and they were confined in prison-like conditions and led stressful lifestyles that was not of their own choosing. Among other things, the nuns were expected to be celibate and submit to poverty, hard work, and unquestioning obedience to authority figures who had the right to compel compliance. Often they were compelled with coercive measures ranging from the imposition of extra labor to the confinement in their cells or even withholding food and water. Physical chastisement and punishment were also available. This ranged from whipping and canning in-house to turning over the most defiant nuns to the ecstatic courts. If things went particularly bad, they could end up with a hard-headed nun getting burned to death for witchcraft or even demonic possession. Such conditions of communal longstanding Stress and Fear are textbook causes for the outbreak of mass hysteria, so it's not surprising that the nunneries frequently experienced eruptions of mass delusion. Now, One of the most bizarre incidents occurred in a French convent in the Middle Ages. A nun started meowing like a cat, an animal viewed in Europe at the time as, as not as cute and cuddly, but as being associated with Satan. Soon, other nuns in the convent joined in and started meowing, and before long, the whole convent was meowing. It eventually became chorus-like, with all the nuns joining in collective caterwauling for several hours each day. Understandably, the alarmed and, this alarmed and upset the neighbors, particularly in the light of cats' association with the devil and demonic possession. Now, pleased to stop or, or pleased to stop,'re not heeded. So soldiers were eventually called in in order to whip the meowing sisters into silence. That finally brought the mass hysteria outbreak to an end.
0: Yeah, I would think. The meowing is, I mean, it could have started off as just something as simple as, you know, Sister Mary meows. Like sometimes she does like meow and it's cute. And then maybe her closest friend did it back. And then the next thing you know, more people are meowing. But to get to the point where everybody's meowing, and no, and they won't stop,
1: is crazy. Unless you've been tortured or saw other people, and, or the threat of, and then you stop. I wonder if, like, maybe somebody was just one of the nuns did a play on words, like you'll hear today. They were like, "All right, I need it. Write me out." <laughs> <laughs> and that's another one, and just lost
0: control. Well, when the soldiers, when they saw the soldiers, they probably stopped really quick. <laughs> <laughs> all right so this next
1: one this has to do with uh, with nuns in a convent as well it's the biting nuns outbreak long-term stresses and fears such as those leading to the meowing nuns were not unique to the particular convent or to france but applied throughout the era's christendom across the rhine from france and germany similar stressors led to mass hysteria outbreak in the 15th century It began when a nun started biting the other sisters in her convent. Before long, the behavior spread, and the convent was full of crazed nuns running around and biting each other. It was described by a 15th century doctor, quoting, A nun in German nunnery fell to biting all of her companions. In the course of a short time, all the nuns of this convent began biting each other. The news of this infatuation among the nuns soon spread and now passed convent to convent throughout a great part of Germany, principally Saxony, and it afterward visited the nunneries of Holland, and at last the nuns had biting mania even as far as Rome. As news of the biting nuns spread, so did the bad habit, and soon other convents throughout Germany were similarly afflicted. Before long, the mass hysteria went international, and the convents in the Netherlands, as, far, as north, far north as Holland, reported outbreaks of biting nuns. The hysteria also traveled south and crossed the Alps into Italy. The authorities were baffled and alarmed, and attempted various countermeasures as the nuns at length worried one another from Rome to Amsterdam, they quoted. When prayers and masses failed, the church resorted to exorcism exorcisms, and casting out the devils and demons, but to no avail. So they resorted to a more basic approach and threatened to flog or dunk into the water any nun who bit another one. Well, that worked. And after a few solitary examples were made, the nuns quickly came to their senses, and the biting fever rapidly subsided. Like, we're going to
0: drown you. (laughs) We're going to hold you underwater until you stop biting. Yeah, that was like waterboarding before it was waterboarding so this one to me is amazing because the geographical regions spread so far apart it's not just one convent or the convent next to a convent but these are different countries that this is spreading through
1: yeah and it's not like there was any technology back then it was all either word or mouth or like a a letter that took two weeks to get somewhere but enough people started talking about it that all the nuns just started biting each other it's amazing that it went that
0: far. It really is. Uh, Steve, you want to grab this next one? Sure. This one is really cool. It's called The Dance Plague of 1518. Uh, we all get a jingle or a tune stuck in our head every now and then, and then we end up humming it or mumbling it nonstop on and off for hours or days on end. Uh, that's bad enough, but what about taking up a notch? How about a dance move that one can't stop? Almost everyone loves a good shimmy, but what happens if the shimmy is so good that you just can't quit and end up dancing yourself to death? That's what the people of Strasbourg-Alsace in what is now France discovered in July of 1518 when their town fell into the grip of a dancing mania. Hundreds of people started dancing nonstop for days on end. By the time the dance fever finally broke... Many of the good people of Strasbourg had literally danced themselves to death from heart attacks, strokes, or just plain exhaustion. It began innocently enough one sunny July morning when Fru Trafi started dancing in the street. Onlookers clapped, they laughed, and they cheered at her high spirits, and they even joined in as she danced. And she danced and she danced some more. Now, Fru Trafi danced without rest for respite of six days and within a week she had been joined by dozens in her marathon dance mostly other women alarmed authorities consulted local physicians who opined that the cause was hot blood on the theory that the dancers would recover only if they got it out of their systems by dancing continuously musicians were hired a wooden stage was erected, oh, An additional dancing space was made by opening up the guild halls and clearing out the marketplace to make more room. Those measures backfired and simply ended up encouraging more and more people to join the hysteria. Within a month, the number of nonstop dancers had ballooned into the hundreds. At the height of the craze, 15 dancers a day were dying from exhaustion and heart attacks. The Strasbourg dance plague was not an isolated incident. And between the 14th and 17th centuries, there were enough similar outbreaks for contemporaries to coin the term Saint the coin the term the phenomenon of Saint Vitus dance or Saint John's dance. There's no modern consensus on what the cause was, so it's simply categorized as unusual social phenomenon, a mass public hysteria or a mass psychogenic illness of unknown prowess.
1: That's crazy. I mean, I I just picture people walking out of their house like, what's going on out here? And people are dancing they're just like, yeah!
0: It's a dance party!
1: Yeah, and they start getting down and before you know, you're all the way down because you danced yourself to death. To death. I mean, you would think that you would be able to stop. Uh, Yeah, I know, man. When I'm at a concert, you know, for dancing around, I'm so hot. You'd think that I know, I stop. I'm like, all right, I need, I need a break. I need to cool down. Give me a slow song. Give me something. But, I mean, and, but, and that's what happened. Like, the government, they started bringing in bands and erected a stage hoping that it would be, like, confined, I guess, to, like, this space. And it completely backfired. Everyone was just
0: like, heck, yeah, it's a free concert. <laughs> yeah, the guy that was in charge of that. I mean, it's a good idea at first. Hey, just let them dance it out. But then when you get 15 people a day dying from it, you got you to gotta pull back on that.
1: Yeah, you really do. Now, this one, we're going to uh, Milan, and it's referred to as the Milan Poisoning Scare. Europeans of the 17th century, they were prone to the fears that nefarious people planned to spread a plague throughout the Christendom via sinister means, such as sorcery and witchcraft or mysterious poisonous gases. Those standing fears were exact, exacerbated in the city of Milan, Italy after its governor received a message in 1629 from King Philip IV of Spain, warning him to be on the lookout for four Frenchmen who had escaped from a Spanish prison and might be en route to Milan to spread the plague via poisonous and different ointments. For months after the royal warning, tensions mounted in Milan. As the alarmed citizens kept getting weary, or they kept a weary lookout for suspicious characters, and grew steadily more stressed out and frazzled as fears mounted of the imminent poisoning. The city sat on a powder keg for months before finally erupting in what came to be known as the Great Poisoning Scare of Milan. It started on the night of May 17th, when some citizens reported seeing mysterious people placing what appeared to be a poison in the cathedral. Health officials went to the cathedral, but found no signs of poisoning. The following morning... The Melanese woke up to find that all the doors on the main streets had been marked with a mysterious daub. Health officials inspected the daubs, but found nothing harmful in them, and concluded that they were a prank by some mischievous actors with a sick sense of humor, getting some laughs out of the citizens' fears. Officials' reassurance were unveiling. Taking the mysterious daubs as a sign that the expected poison attack had finally arrived, the Milanese went into a citywide bout of mass hysteria and began accusing random people of acts of poison, ranging from passersby on the streets to various nobles, to Cardinal Richelieu of France or General Wallenstein, commander of the armies of the Holy Roman Empire, and then the raging Thirty Year War. Among the early victims of hysteria was an elderly man who spotted wiping a bench in church before sitting down. A mob of crazed women accused him of poisoning the seat, and they seized and violently attacked him in the church. They then dragged him to the magistrate, while continued to beat him on the way and ended up killing him en route. More tragic was the case of a pharmacist who was accused of being in cahoots with the devil when he he was found with unknown potions. After prolonged torture and stretching on the rack, he changed his protest of innocence to a confession of guilty, repeating whatever whatever his torturers wanted to hear in order to end the pain. Admitting to being in the league with a devil and foreigners to poison the city, the pharmacist named other accomplices who were innocent of any crime. They in turn were arrested and tortured, and to end their suffering, they named yet more innocents repeating the process over and over. All were tried, convicted based on the confession extracted under torture, and they were executed. As the mass hysteria and mounting insanity tightened its grip on the feared city, fevered city, a high number of Melanes stepped forward to accuse themselves. Many went to the magistrate and voluntarily confessed to amazing deeds of the supernatural, describing meetings with the devil, witches, sorcerers, and other practitioners of black magic, in which they plotted to poison the city. As reported, the number of persons who confessed that they were employed by the devil to distribute poison is almost incredible. Many were executed based on their own voluntary false confessions. Wow. That is crazy. People got so wrapped up in it, they're like, I'm doing it.
0: Uh, the guy, I feel terrible, wiping down the bench to go to church and yep. the people inside the church are so scared that they start to hit him and they're going to take him down so that he can serve justice so that justice can be served on him. And he doesn't make it. Yeah. They killed
1: him. And there's no report. If these people were even held accountable for the, for the murder,
0: probably Knox there. Probably like he was spreading poison. It's an angry mob. That's in Milan too. Yeah. I don't want to go to Milan. Not anymore. Sorry, people in Milan. Steve, you're up, brother. All right. This is the Lyle Boarding School. The Lily Boarding School. Lily Boarding School Witchcraft Hysteria. So Antoinette Bourgenon, a pious but mentally unstable 17th century French woman, founded an all-girls boarding school in Lily, France. One day in 1639, upon entering the classroom, Madame Bourgenon, Imagine that she saw a swarm of little black angels flying around the heads of the schoolgirls. Taking fright, she told the children, beware of the devil, those little black imps were buzzing all around them. The schoolhead mistress developed an obsession with the little black imps hovering around her ward's heads and kept warning the schoolgirls daily to watch out for the devil. Soon, the the impressionable children came to believe that there were indeed little black demons flying all around them, and before long, Satan and satanic possession became almost the sole topic of conversation at the school. One of the girls ran away, too frightened to remain in school, that was infested with little black devils, who might possess her at any moment. As Madame Bourjnan and her staff never tired of the warning for the students, when she was Brought back, she claimed not to have run away, but to have been carried away by the devil, and that she saw a witch and had been one since age seven. Upon hearing that, about 50 other schoolgirls started having fits, and when they came to, joined in you know, this Me Too rush, and claimed to be witches as well. In all their clamor to confess, the children competed to outdo each other with the details of their supposed dark deeds. Some claimed to have ridden broomsticks, only to be topped by others claiming an ability to pass through keyholes, to be trumped in turn by those claiming to feast on the flesh of babies or to have attended the Domendale or gathering of the demons. A formal investigation was launched, and while some clergy and citizens of Lily were skeptical, the majority were in the opinion that the children's confessions were valid, and that an example should be made by burning all 50 schoolgirls at the stake as witches. Their lives were only spared after some of the skeptical clergy, aghast at what had was about to happen, insisted that the investigators dig deeper, at which point they discovered the school's headmistress had done to fill the he- the girl's heads with thoughts of demonic possession the children were absolved and the blame was shifted to madame Bourgnon, who barely escaped punishment after the authorities unsure of her sanity and tired of the whole affair wound down and closed the investigation
1: so wild you just can like picture
0: kids being like oh yeah Why eat baby's flesh. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, to start it off, like, you get this one – children are so impressionable. Certainly. You get this one teacher, and the teacher keeps saying something, and then it starts to catch, and then it catches like wildfire.
1: Yeah. I mean, I used to do this thing uh, back when I would wear a watch, and my kids were small, and the sun would be coming in the window a little bit. I would catch it, and I would shine a light up on the wall and tell all my kids that, you know, it was a fairy. Or Tinkerbell, and they loved. They believed it. So I mean, if you continue, continuously tell children that there's these little black, they're going to start saying, "Oh, I see him, I see him." Yeah, and then the, I mean, it just escalate from there. It's such a horrible thing to say to children.
0: Yeah, that that headmistress should have been removed.
1: Yeah, and her sanity was definitely in question. So we're going to turn over to the Irish now. The Irish Fright of sixteen eighty eight. From the start of his reign. Resentment simmered against Britain's Catholic King James II, as his mostly Protestant subjects decreed and feared his perceived machinations to restore Catholicism to the realm. The resentment was kept under control. However, as the concerned populace reasoned that the elderly monarch had no son and when he died would be succeeded by the staunchly Protestant daughter Mary and her even morely staunchly Protestant husband, William of Orange... In 1688, however, King James unexpectedly had a son, removing at a stroke the option of running out the clock and waiting for the king's eventual death and replacement by the Protestant successor. The simmering resentments came to a boil, setting in motion the glorious revolution that ended with the flight of King James II and his replacement on the British throne by his daughter Mary II and her husband William III in the in between james fight flight uh, has replacement by william and mary there was no government and fears of anarchy and lawless violent gripped the country lawlessness violence gripped the country the greatest manifestation of those fears came to be known as the irish fight which centered around an irish army that james ii had brought to england towards the end of his reign in an attempt to prompt up his tottering throne the army was greatly resented and feared by the english many of whom recalled and most whom believed sometimes exaggerated stories of widespread Irish massacres and depravities against Protestants during the Civil War a few decades earlier. Many English people were thus primed to believe that the Irish were predisposed to savagery and capable of any atrocity. Against the backdrop, rumors began circulating in December of 1688 that the Catholic Irish forces quartered in England were readying themselves to fall upon the English to massacre, rape, and loot to the, avenge the ouster of their Catholic King James. The Irish fright began in earnest on the night of December 13, 1688, when the news arrived at Westminster that the ravening Irish were marching on London. Fake news of preparations for atrocities were quickly followed by fake news of actual atrocities, as false reports that the Irish were putting English towns to the torch and massacring the inhabitants spread. The panicked English in London and surrounding shires rushed to arm themselves and form militias, erect fortifications, and patrol the countryside to guard against the imminent arrival of the imaginary hordes of bloodthirsty Irish. The Irish fright subsided after a few days, and in hindsight, it seems that the rumors were begun or at least spread as part of an organized propaganda campaign by the opponents of James II to further discredit his cause and to buttress that of William of Orange. When the latter landed in England, at the head of the mostly foreign army, he was greeted not as an invader, but with raptures as a savior, not only of the Protestant faith but of the Protestants themselves from the feared depredations of the Irish.
0: That would be so scary. That would be. If you were a soldier or just a patron or just somebody in that town and you just knew that there was a big army coming to get you and they already marched on London and there's nothing you can do about it, you'd be sitting there ready to fight.
1: And just get wiped out.
0: And then for it to not happen and all be kind of a hoax yeah that is crazy
1: it really is but it worked to the one guy's benefit steve do you want the salem witch trials
0: yeah this is kind of this is a big one when you're talking about mass hysteria the salem witch trials goes down in history perhaps history's most famous or infamous case of mass hysteria the salem witch craze of 1692 to 1693 took place against a cultural and religious background that was predisposed to believe in the supernatural. While witchcraft is laughable to most today, in the 17th century, colonial America, and especially in Salem and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was taken quite seriously. The belief that the devil could grant witches extraordinary powers in return for their loyalty and their witchcraft could be used to inflict harm on the good and the godly was taken for granted. It began in January of 1692, when the 9-year-old daughter and 11-year-old niece of Salem's reverend started having screaming fits, during which they contorted themselves into unnatural positions. They threw things and made weird noises. A local doctor, finding no signs of physical ailment, blamed it on the supernatural. Soon, another young girl, aged 11, started exhibiting similar symptoms. Examined by the magistrates, the girls accused three women of bewitching them. The Reverend's black slave, Tituba, is that how you say it? Yeah, Tituba. Tituba, an elderly, impoverished woman named Sarah Osborne, and a homeless beggar named Sarah Good. Osborne and Good protested their innocence, but for whatever reason, perhaps torture or perhaps the promise of leniency, Tituba confessed to having been visited by the devil, whom she described as a black man who asked her to sign a book. Admitting that she signed, Tituba went on to point the finger at the other witches. The mass hysteria then erupted, and over the following months, a flood of accusations came pouring in. And the more far-fetched they were, the more they solidified the populace's belief in the potency of witchcraft and enhanced the panic. When the godly and regular churchgoer, Martha Corey, was accused of witchcraft, rather than give the good people of Salem pause, it merely redoubled their fears. If solid citizen Martha Corey could be a witch, then anyone could be a witch. On May 27th, the colony's governor ordered the establishment of a special court to try the accused, and its first victim was Bridget Bishop, an older woman known as Gossip and with a reputation for promiscuity. Her protestations of innocence were unavailing, and she was convicted, sentenced to death, and hanged on June 10th in what became known as the Gallows Hill. Five more were convicted and hanged in July, another five in August, and eight in September. The trials marked by a lack of due process And the use of spectral evidence, basically testimony by witnesses, that they dreamt or had a vision that the spirit or specter of the accused, which did them harm. Thus, an accuser's dream or vision that Jane Doe bit, hit, or punched me was admissible evidence in the court that Jane Doe had actually bit, hit, or punched the accuser, even if the unfortunate Doe was nowhere near the accuser that day. Her specter was. Respected theolo- theologian and Reverend Cotton Mathers wrote the court cautioning against the use of spectral evidence, but was ignored. The colonies' governing finally put an end to the trials and their ever-expanding circle of accusations when his own wife was accused of being a witch, by which point 200 people had been accused of witchcraft and 20 had already been hanged. Eventually, the authorities admitted that the trials had been a mistake. They compensated the families of the wrongly convicted victims of the witch hunt. Thereafter, the Salem mass hysteria and the resultant trials became synonymous with paranoia and injustice and stand today as cautionary tale about the dangers of religious extremism, false accusations, and the lack of due process.
1: That one's crazy too.
0: And I, I I like how it
1: I mean, this is the actual history of these things. And you know, a lot of people will go about thinking that in the Salem witch trials that all these people they were burned at the stake. That was just uh, that's just not true. They were they were hanged, but they were never burned at the stake, so that's very interesting to learn as well. It's like an over dramatization of Yeah, that. but like, oh if you're a witch they're gonna burn you at the stake. Okay, we're gonna get a little into the ghost <laughs> Hammersmith Ghost Hysteria. Pardon me. In November of 1803, reports began circulating of ghost sightings in Hammersmith District in West London. Many thought that the ghost was that of the recent subsided buried in Hammersmith's churchyard, which was in the line with a widespread contemporary belief that suicides should not be buried in consecrated grounds because their souls would then find no rest there. The ghost was described by all who saw it as being very tall and dressed all in white, with some witnesses adding horns and a glass eye to, to the description. Alarmed at these sightings quickly grew to the widespread panic and then mass hysteria as more people stepped forward to report that they had not only seen the Hammersmith ghost, but been attacked by it as well. In response, fearful citizens took to arms and began patrolling the neighborhood. On the night of January 3rd, 1804, One of the armed citizens, Francis Smith, was on patrol when he came across a bricklayer, Thomas Millwood, returning home from a visit to his parents, while clad in the typical clothing of his trade. White pants, white shirt, and a white apron. Leveling his shotgun at what he took to be the ghost, Smith shot Millwood in the face, killing him instantly. Dang. Smith was arrested and tried for willful murder. The presiding judge instructed the jury that establishing malice was not necessary for the conviction and that all killings were either murder or manslaughter, absent circumstances that were not present here. Smith was duly convicted, then sentenced to death, which sentence was subsequently commuted to a year's hard labor. As to the Hammersmith ghost, it later emerged that it was an elderly local shoemaker who wore his guise to frighten
0: his apprentice. So there was a ghost. Yeah, it was there. It was just fake. Imagine that elder, elderly local shoemaker, how he felt when that guy got shot and killed. Oh, yeah. I mean. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Totally. All right. Let me see. I'll
1: do this next one if you don't yeah. want to do it. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. This one's the Halifax Slasher. In 1938, the town of Halifax in England was gripped by mass hysteria that lasted for about two weeks. During an imaginary attacker fell upon local women. It all began on the night of November 16, 1938, when two young female employees of the local mill were attacked by an unknown man and rushed to a nearby house for aid, with blood streaming down their heads from a wound apparently caused by a razor blade. Police were called, a report was filed, and spread throughout the community, as described by the Halifax Courier, the local newspaper. Until the culprit is found and effectively dealt with, there is not likely to be much peace of mind, not only locally, but further afield. The affair was created a tremendous sensation and has thoroughly upset the people. Five days later, another young woman in the vicinity reported being attacked by a man who left her with a deep and clean cut to her wrist, as if from a razor. Notwithstanding a clear description of the attacker, police had no luck finding him. When three days later, another victim stepped forward. The authorities turned to the public for leads, and the local newspaper carried the headline, $10 Police Reward for the Arrest of the Halifax Slasher. With the news that a slasher was in the midst, mass hysteria gripped the community. Even Scotland Yard was called in to help the local police businesses in Halifax and its surroundings just shut down. The panic grew apace as more and more reports, and rumors of reports, all of them unfolded, came pouring of new attacks by the slasher in surrounding towns. Out on the streets, wild-eyed vigilante groups were set up and started patrolling the region, which set up and beat up many a stranger whom they came upon and mistakenly assumed was the slasher. After a woman had alleged that she had been attacked, a local Good Samaritan, who had gone to help ended up being wrongly accused by vigilantes of being the slasher and was set upon by a mob. Only the intervention of police who escorted him home saved his life. The mass hysteria finally began to subside on November 29th. One of the victims of the Halifax slasher admitted to his injuries that they had been self-inflicted. Other supposed victims soon confessed too that they, too, had made up the attacks. And after 9 to 12 victims confessed to the self-harm, Scotland Yard concluded that there had never been a Halifax slasher and closed the investigation. Five locals who had filed false reports were arrested and charged, of whom four ended up doing time in prison for public mischief.
0: That's just wrong.
1: That's just crazy. Like, people... I mean, is, go ahead. I was just going to say, people just admitting that or thinking that this went down when, in their mind, they know that it didn't happen. It's like
0: inciting a riot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um in one of the similar stories and, and and one of the reasons that that we're not covering in full today. I mean, they were just saying how people were coming forward and saying that they that they were slashed by somebody when it was just like an old wound that had reopened and or some of them were again self-inflicted and or just happened by circumstance. Right, was, just a normal cut. Yeah. Crazy though that uh, what enough fear will do. So you want to jump? I think this
0: may be our last one right here. Well, this one is cool. Um, the, the name of the, the town is tough. Tanganyika, a laughter epidemic. In 1962, a mass hysteria episode in which people started laughing uncontrollably began in the village of Kashasha on the western shore of Lake Victoria in Tanganyika, modern Tanzania, and quickly spread throughout the surrounding region. By the time it subsided months later, the mass hysteria had affected thousands of people and led to the closure of 14 schools. It all started on January 30th, 1962, when a girl in a missionary boarding school had a fit of anxiety-induced laughter and started crackling, Uncontrollably. She was soon joined by two of her friends, and it was not long before the contagion had spread and engulfed the school. Within a short time, 95 out of the school's 159 students were also laughing uncontrollably. It got bad enough that the schoolgirls were unable to concentrate, and the school was forced to shut down six weeks later. The afflicted students took their mass hysteria with them when they were sent back to their families. And within a short time of returning home, the contagion had spread from the schoolgirls to the surrounding community. Before long, students in other schools in the region were affected as well. The symptoms consisted in the main of recurring bouts of uncontrollable laughing and crying that lasted from a few hours to over two weeks, combined with a general restlessness, aimless running around, and the occasional resort to aggressive violence. Doctors could find no physical cause for the contagion. By the time the mass hysteria subsided, about a year later, 14 schools had closed down and thousands had been affected. Subsequent investigations attributed the initial outbreak to stress among the schoolgirls, who found themselves in an alien environment within the missionary-run boarding school. The outbreak affected only the schoolgirls without touching any of the teachers or staff. Beyond the school, the surrounding population was dealing with the stress and uncertainty of their country's future, as Tanganyika had, had gained its independence only a month before the mass hysteria eruption. Insane. Laughing. Just laughing.
1: Yeah, and I, I imagine it wasn't very uh, pleasant laughing.
0: Oh, no, it was probably creepy laughing.
1: Yeah. You know, I thought that one was our last one. Uh, I'm going to do this last one. I'm going to preface it by... Uh you know, considered kind of graphic by uh, a standards, standard, so um, you know, just forewarned. This one's called the uh, McMartin preschool Child Abuse Hysteria." In 1983, a mentally unstable mother accused Ray Bucky, an employee of the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, of raping her child. She also went on to add that people in the day added that people in the day school had sex with animals, that Ray, Bucky's mother, and preschool owner, Peggy McMartin, had pre-forderated a child under the arm with a power drill, and that Ray flew in the air. Police were skeptical, but nonetheless sent a letter to other parents at the school, asking them to question their children about the abuse at the school. As parents talked to their children and other parents, other accusations of abuse began trickling in, and soon turned into a flood of wild, weird, and increasingly increasingly incredible accusations of abuse that stretched amidst a massive hysteria of false accusations. Social workers were brought in to gather more information, and between a combination of incompetence and leading questions, the children's accusations grew steadily wilder and more bizarre. In addition to being molested by Ray Bucky and his mother Peggy McMartin, the children alleged that they had been made to participate in satanic rites in which they were forced to drink the blood of a baby who they had witnessed being sacrificed in the church. The children also said that they saw witches flying and that they had been abused in a hot air balloon and in a non-existent tunnel beneath the preschool. And one of the children claimed to have been sexually molested by actor Chuck Norris, Other children added, after being abused in secret rooms, that they were flushed down toilets, then cleaned up and presented to their parents. Although the accusations were incredible, they came at a time when the country was in the grip of widespread fears of ritual sexual abuse of children, connected in some way to satanic worship and dark magic rites. With elections drawing near, ambiguous, you know, or ambitious, Los Angeles District Attorney Ira Reiner unscrupulously sought to capitalize on the mounting public hysteria and slapped Ray Bucky and his mother Peggy McMartin with 208 counts of child molestation. Bucky and his mother were arrested in 1984, and the investigation lasted for three years until 1987. Mother and son were then put on a three-year trial, which lasted from 87 to 90. It was the longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history. At its conclusion, a jury acquitted Peggy Martin of all the charges, while Ray Bucky was acquitted of 52 of 65 charges, with the jury deadlocked on the remaining counts of 10 to 2 in favor of acquittal. Those charges were then dropped, and the mass hysteria and subsequent trial concluded without a single conviction.
0: That one has so many outrageous
1: claims. Yeah, I mean, a lot of different things could have uh, taken place. Uh When the parents started asking the kids, there could have been... They may not have liked those people. So they could have been like, well, did they ever do this? Are you sure that this never... I mean, to come up with... And then to name Chuck Norris, I mean, he was probably like, yo!
0: To say that that Ray flew in the air and that they were taken into tunnels and hot air balloons, it sounds preposterous. It does. I mean, especially without... There was no proof of it, and you know there
1: was acquittals all over the place, but it's just crazy mass hysteria. I guess some good good advice uh, from time to time would be to um, see what the masses are doing and do the opposite.
0: Yeah, think for yourself. If somebody's doing something and it doesn't seem right, don't do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't want to dance yourself to death or laugh or be meowing for many countries wide only to be beaten
0: yeah or make a cut on your arm and say that it was a slasher that did it yeah i mean that's just uh
1: that's munchausen's right there and if you're doing it to anybody other munchausen's by proxy but you know it's uh, the brain is a complex tool and it can be influenced by apparently just about anything and the younger you are i think the more it's going to grip you
0: Yeah, those were awesome examples of mass hysteria, Folts. Yeah,
1: so uh, we thought it was interesting. We hope you did too. Uh, Stay tuned. We got more great podcasts coming up, and uh, we just love putting them out to you guys. But I'll just say this. Until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.